Yeah. All right, everyone. Welcome to another edition of From the Stands. Um, on today's episode, we are humbled and um, thrilled to be able to talk to the founder of Special Olympics, Dr. Frank Hayden. Uh, Dr. Frank, how are you today? I'm doing fine, and you look good too, right? Thank you. I'm trying. It's it's uh it's an interesting time for sure, obviously without sports. But I've been busy trying to stay fit to a degree, uh, and um, to be able to talk and uh, to yeah, it's been Special Olympics. Sorry, there we go. Uh, it's been a hectic time for sure as well. Yeah, yeah. It gets a little boring after a while when life changes this way, but uh, don't worry, it's coming back. Oh, for sure. How are you and Marion doing? We're doing okay. We're fine, and we try to get out for exercise now and then and uh, try to stay fit. And uh, We have some medical assistance uh, about the things when we visit them, and uh, we have family in the area. Well, you may know Scott worked uh, at Special Olympics Ontario off and on, yeah. and he's yeah. working in uh, personal training now, doing well with it. And, um, so we see them, and they try to make sure our life is not too boring. That's great. Um, so let's hop right into it. So my first question for you is, where did the passion come for you for wanting to help support individuals with an intellectual disability? Well, it's funny uh, the way things happen. I uh, I was down at the University of Illinois. I went to Western originally. I went down to Illinois for my uh, master's degree, worked for the Air Force, and then somebody told me, you know, you should go back there and get the doctorate because it's, a, it's like a union card for universities to get a job. So we all went down there for, oh, about four or five years. And uh, wondering how to get back into Canada for a job, and something showed up at the University of Toronto, and a wonderful man named Dr. Harry Ebbs, who was also chief of pediatrics at the Sick Kids. Um, I went up and interviewed with him for a job on the faculty at, at Toronto, and uh, fortunately got it. And we all came back to Toronto, and. Uh, he called me while I was still down there and said, I have a chance for a grant that'll pay half your salary if you're willing to do uh, some work and research with children with uh, a mental handicap. And I said, well, I'll call you back in two days and let you know. I, I have a full minor in psychology in my doctoral program, but I didn't have anything in that area at this time. And so, uh, I went to the library and read up, and I, at the end of a few days, I called them back and said, fine, I'll do it, because uh, the chief reason was that um, there was hardly anything published back then. And um, then I went down to the uh, Beverly School in downtown Toronto, and frankly, what really turned me on and got me going were the students there and the teachers there and the staff and what they were doing and uh, people had no idea. There were about, I think about 350 kids there. And uh, it was terrific experience. Uh, I, I look forward to going there every day and 
there were two young people that were running the phys ed program there. And uh, during Crystal and Harold Smith and uh, um, doing a terrific job without a lot of training to do it. So I loved that and, and I stayed with it. And uh, just because of what I found out there and how unfit they were and what the programs we put in and so on, how fit they could be if they had more activity and and I said to myself uh, eventually I said uh, the way to do that is through sport that's the way that'll keep them interested that'll get them fit and um, and they're ready for it they're ready to go so Special Olympics is really in a lot of ways it's a uh, it's the application of what we were doing at Beverly School course with a lot of twists and turns and additions of various people over the years but um, the Beverly School is really where the thought started. And that's fantastic because as we know Special Olympics is such a huge movement of inclusion today and truly like your work has launched into a like, I don't even know how words can describe it. There's so many ways that your work has benefited thousands and thousands and thousands of athletes um, across Canada, the U.S., the world, and everything as well. And uh, for that, I'm going to say it probably a few times during this chat, but thank you so much for your work because uh, I know for me personally, as I mentioned, and as you're aware, I'm an athlete with Special Olympics as well. I wouldn't be here today without the work that you uh, you provided uh, early on as well. Now, during... Well, that's nice of you to say that. Uh and I'd like to hear um, but frankly I've got at least as much out of Special Olympics as any athlete in the world and a uh, big part and my whole family as well so uh, and we still are here we are still doing things and uh, um, it's been a very big part of my life and uh, um, I'm glad I made the decisions I made along the way and out of those decisions and out of the Special Olympics sports that we now have, there's 18 sports that Special Olympics Canada provides to athletes, uh, again, across Canada. Which out of those sports would you have to say is your favorite? My favorite? Well, I like them all. You know, another reason I got into this was my own background. You know, I was never uh, an Olympic athlete. But uh, <clears throat> through high school, I played football, basketball, track, lacrosse, uh, baseball. I went to university, I wrestled. And so sport was such a big part of my life. So I knew if we brought that into the life of anybody, what it could do for them. Not just physically that, of course, and health-wise, but what it does for your life and the friends you make and the things you look forward to and the goals you have and working with your teammates and so um that uh that was a big part of it too in some ways i was trying to bring my life but actually into the into theirs but as it turned out uh special olympics gave them a lot more than even i had along the way and uh, so um, uh, 
I, I grew up in St. Catharines and, uh, and just because of my great involvement of sport is why I went into phys ed at Western and then down to Illinois. So sport has played a big part in my life the same way. And for Marion and I here, the biggest reward for us now is when we go to events like you're talking about, talk to athletes, but more talk to parents yeah. and family members and say, uh, who say to us, boy, you don't know what this has brought into our life. Um, it's not quite the same way as it was at the beginning because it was brand new to them. And uh, I didn't know what was going to happen when uh, we were going to do that. But I had confidence, again, because of the Beverly School. I saw how they reacted and what fun we had together. And, and they had no objection to running and training and working hard and we all had great fun at it and uh i thought the way to express this is really through sport definitely now as we all know special olympics has made such a remarkable impact worldwide with programs in over a like in 193 countries what are your thoughts on something that began like you touched on it a little bit uh earlier in our conversation but what is like what are your thoughts on something that began from your research has now become a global movement uh, i'm sorry i don't quite get the question uh sorry like what are your thoughts on like we see how big of um like a movement special olympics is uh all over the world now and it all began with your research how does the feeling for you like what's the, your feelings towards knowing that something that you started has made that big of an impact uh, across the globe? Well, the, um, the first thing I think about it very selfishly is, and I think what a wonderful thing it's done for me. Um, of those 193 countries, I've probably visited almost half of them one way or another. And, and many that I haven't, I uh, was with them there at the beginning to help them get started. Um, the, uh, the thing too, uh, as far as the worldwide thing is concerned, it really opened my eyes that, you know, that we're all the same in this world. You know, when I went to Africa, or I went to Australia, or went to China, these places, the people I work with and the athletes we work with, they weren't any different than I had at the Beverly School or that you guys are here. Um, and so excited and interested in sport too, which is a worldwide thing. And uh, we, are, especially these days with some problems, uh, people think we're that different because our skin color is different or our religion or our background or where in the world we come from. Well, we're much more alike than we are different. And we see that all the time in Special Olympics. For sure. Um, it's definitely, yeah, because like you're, you're right on the head, like nail on the head with that. Like there's so many different ability levels with Special Olympics and the, the message and the power of inclusion 
within the movement is so important and and that you're right like we are all like and there isn't a difference between us because we're just as good as the next person to be able to play sports and and that truly shows with the uh programs that we have in place as well yeah like winning is uh, it makes it more fun i guess <laughs> and but uh we like in all sport the thing is to perform the best you can on a given day and uh, and be happy with your performance after that. What everybody else does is up to them. But uh, be happy with what you do. Like sometimes, even if you win, you might not be all that happy with you perform because you know you could have done better even at that. But um, you're really competing against yourself and and the goals that you've set for yourself and so you can feel good about yourself when it's over that's a big part of it now out of all of the programs through the 193 countries that special olympics has which country is your favorite outside of canada to see programming uh in or or competing in well it's good that you uh Canada out of it because <laughs> yeah, I, I have some bias that way. Um, it was funny with Canada, by the way, that when I first started in the United States, actually, I, I was going to do it up here. I had a proposal that the Centennial Commission in Ottawa had pretty well said they would fund the whole thing, not just the games. I said two years of training and and building an organization leading up to the games, and we would have been left with it after 1967, the Canada centennial year. And there was a lot of money in Ottawa to do things like that. They were really happy when they looked at the proposal and they mentioned, you know, we like things that are like a birthday party and people participate in what you've got the range of people and the roles and things that will be required to make it happen means that everybody will be a part of this and not just the athletes so but through a series of circumstances i uh, ended up going down to the united states to the kennedy foundation and uh, and doing it there the um uh, first games were in 68 I think I actually went down there about the first time about, <coughs> sorry, about 1961 for a year and then came back. Um, I was at Western by then and uh, took a year off just to try it down there and see and I found, what I found out was, yeah, it had the potential, couldn't do a lot in that regard in one year, but, uh, and every time I gave a presentation anywhere in the States and in Washington or people came in to visit, I always pumped this idea with them. I don't know what I was calling it then, not, not Special Olympics. I put that term on once we had games established in the, the first games in Chicago and uh, decided to give it that name. And to be honest with you, the name came from well, first of all, Olympics, obviously, to give an idea of what it was that we were after. I was always uh, a big fan of the Olympics or the games, certainly as they were back then. And then 
special just because that's what everybody was using special education special needs special programs etc what we put uh, special on it people will know what we're talking about and uh, but when i think about how it grew it, it whether it's state to state or uh, country to country my first thought is people and i see the the, the man i see the woman or the girl or the boy and you know, it got established well here in Canada as well because of some very special people that that were committed to it. And frankly, it wasn't that hard to sell. It was so hard here in Canada to uh, get them to take on the commitment and the challenge of a national organization and of having regularly scheduled games and doing that initially here in Canada, Special Olympics was really just the national games that happened now and then, not on any regular schedule, but just people were told across the country, fly some kids into Toronto uh, next August or whatever for games. And uh, it took a while to, to uh, convince the powers that be that it needed an organization of its own. And, um, Actually, the pressure came a lot from the West, as a lot of things do in Canada between East and West, that uh, they wanted to be part of the action. They didn't want to just get a call to say, bring kids and, and do what you do. But uh, they said they wanted to be part of the operation, have a say in it, have some input and do it in a shared way. And... Um, got their word heard and that and so it took uh, I think at least seven or eight years from the first games in Toronto in 69 uh, before there was really a Special Olympics Canada organization um, but the um, it's sort of related to what I was talking about that people aren't that different around the world I I just you know the my favorite memories really have to do with the people, you know, and things that happen. And, and so many of them, you know, we are what we are today and the experiences you and all your fellow athletes have is because of those people. And that's true of everything in life. If you want to do something or accomplish, you know, you need, it's people that will help you. And once you find them, and you establish your relationship, you know, try to hold on to that. And, um, you know, I, I tell you for like an example, one of, when they talk about the history, one of the first countries that pops into my mind is New Zealand. I, I had established an office for international development and um, put myself as director. I got, I was on, got leave from McMaster. I was at McMaster by that time. And uh, I established an office in Washington for international development. And I spent a third of my time there and uh, maybe two thirds traveling the world. And I still had an office at Mac. But um, before the games in 1983, which were done in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Louisiana State University, terrific 
sports school, marvelous facilities and sport-oriented people. It was a great place for us to go. And uh, so this is 1983, and along about uh, early that year, January, I think, I got a call at my office in Washington by a fellow, and he says, hello, he says, my name is Grant Quinn. And he says, I'm uh, in uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, and I'm a swimming coach. That's what I do. And at my club that I operate, I have some kids from special education classes and so on that swim with us. And I heard about those games you're, you're having this year. And he says, I want to send a team. He says, uh, because um, some of them swim well enough that they'll do well there. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but you, you can't just jump on the plane and come over here. I said, you have no organization, no program, no training for this that I know of. Uh, you've never run a competition to select them. I said, you have to accomplish and build something before. Initially, we took everybody that came, but now um, you really have to have something in place. Well, he uh, debated with me for quite a while, and eventually we said goodbye. And about a week later, I got another call from him, and he went through the whole thing again, and I tried to explain. Another two weeks, he calls me again. <laughs> he called me about four or five times in two months, still pleading his case, and eventually I said to myself, you know, Frank, this guy will probably do it. Um, He's so committed and so determined of making this, these calls. So um, next time he called, I said, okay, you can bring, uh, I think it was four or six swimmers and uh, two coaches with them. And, but I said, there's just one uh, obligation you have. If, you, if I say you can come, when you go back, you have to take the responsibility to establish Special Olympics New Zealand, the national program. Without a, a beat passing, he said, you're on. <laughs> and uh, after the games, they came to the games. It's funny, though that group that came, I remember they went to a nice cream shop. They, they were off for the afternoon, didn't have, weren't competing. They go into an ice cream shop in downtown Baton Rouge, and several of them were very uh, social, loved to chat and chat with everybody. And one of the athletes went up to the young man behind the counter, and he says, "Hi," he says, uh, "My name's Jim. Who are you?" And the guy says, "Well, I'm Bill." And he says, "Well, Bill," he says, "I'm Jim, and I'm from uh, New Zealand, and I came here to swim." He says, and I'm competing tomorrow afternoon, and you should be there to see me. And the guy behind the counter says, well, I'm sorry. Uh, he says, well, I can't come, but uh, he says, I have to work. And Bill says, uh, really? He says, where's the boss? <laughs> and he, and he's, he's at the back of the store. So Billy goes to the back of the store, and he says, Hi, I'm Billy, and I'm from New Zealand, and I'm swimming tomorrow, and you're 
employee up there wants to come and see me, but he says you won't let him. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, without going through the whole story, what happened in the end, the next day when he swam, that young man behind the counter was there to cheer him. So was the boss that ran the place and two other staff people from there. He had his whole uh, cheering section to help him. Um, when they went back to New Zealand, oh, and they came and they looked fantastic. They were dressed just like a, a New Zealand Olympic team with the blazers with the uh, silver leaf on here and the gray slacks. And they had traveling uniforms, competing uniforms, and they really did it up well. And uh, when they got back home, Frank uh, Quinn called me and said, are you going to help me if I do this now? So, I said, sure, I'll be there. I ended up going there about four times. And uh, when I went the first time, we traveled over the length and breadth of New Zealand. And he had things set up for me to give demonstrations with athletes or, or give a talk uh, to a club or whatever to tell people what was going on. And... Uh, so I saw all of New Zealand, it was terrific. What they could do down there, at least in those days, he would walk me into a newspaper office and uh, introduce me and tell them why I was there and whatnot, and that uh, they needed to get somebody to interview me. And somebody would come out and do it and be in the paper the next day. Or we'd go to a television show and uh, whoever did the drive home show would be on. And they take me in there and I and all of this just off the spur of the moment walking in. You know, it's pretty uh, informal country down there in uh, New Zealand. Yeah. So, uh, and then he took his teams and me. We all went to uh, the uh, parliament, uh, New Zealand parliament. And there was a wonderful reception in the lobby with the prime minister and uh, um, all of the uh, the parliament members as well. And the, a lot of the athletes spoke about their experiences and what they were doing now. And of course, they were all dressed in their travel uniforms. And uh, it's a wonderful story of how it happens, you know, because uh, they start from, not exactly from zero in that he had a swim club, but, but um, there was somebody like Grant Quinn who was ready and prepared to do that. And uh, uh, in the end, as things went along, Grant, as the program grew in New Zealand, I say we're down there several times and uh, I tried to set up the, or did set up the international program on a regional basis. And one being the Asia Pacific region big region to uh, cover and try to get somebody responsible for it. And uh, Grant became the uh, director for the Asia Pacific area and helped people that way. So uh, it's funny how it starts, you know, for me telling him no, 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 and all of a sudden he's affecting things not only across New Zealand, but across the whole Asia Pacific area. 
Yeah, it's insane how how small knit the community really is. And also, too, I have to say, you remembering people's names is fantastic because I am the kind of guy that recognizes a face like nine times out of ten. Will I remember their name? Two times out of ten. So the fact that you know stories like that is just remarkable. Like, that's that's incredible that, like, someone reached out to you like that, and now here we are with a program in New Zealand. Now... Yeah. When, when well, I'll tell you, right, it, yeah. it gets harder as time goes on to remember names, especially. But because of the things you do with them, you remember the names. Definitely, you know, it's like, all about the memories. I always remember Grant just because of uh, what he did and went together and what came out of it. Um, you know, and you, the one of the inspiring stories from Europe. Actually, there's a guy named Bernard Jourdan, and he ran a uh, residential complex, really interesting place in, uh, in uh, outside of Brussels in Belgium. And uh, he heard about Special Olympics, and he was really a go-getter. And he was a uh, major move as far as uh, Europe was concerned. And uh, um, but the other country and the people I remember are from Ireland. Ireland, uh, they really got into the program and they had some things going there before through their school in terms of sport and physical activity. And, uh, and uh, the young lady running the gymnastics program and phys ed and whatnot there was named Mary Davis. And uh, I worked with her and other people in Ireland. I, my dad was from Ireland, so I had a special interest in that. She was terrific. And then as were the whole crew that she brought together in Ireland, it was great. And they influenced not just Ireland, but Europe. And uh, then I, at one point later, I lived over in Europe in Paris to, to to get an office established for European Special Olympics. And um, eventually she succeeded me there. She became the director of Special Olympics Ireland. She moved in there to become director of Special Olympics Europe. And now today, she's the executive director of Special Olympics International. <laughs> She's come all that way. And I'll tell you, they couldn't have appointed a better person and somebody that knows it from top to bottom. They know the athletes and the coaches and what has to happen. And uh, she spends part of her time in uh, Washington where she has an office there and part of her time back in, uh, back in Dublin. But, uh, it's because of people like Mary Davis that we are what we are today. And uh, I always think that one of the best moves they ever made was her appointment down in Washington, for sure. Yeah, I haven't uh, had the pleasure of meeting Mary yet. I, I've been on like, a, I've seen her on obviously some videos with athletes and things like that. Um, but you're right, it, it's very important in an organization, especially this substantial, to have someone that has that knowledge, that has that background, to be able to know top to bottom or bottom to top rather, 
what needs to go into programming to keep the success of it going for sure. Exactly. Exactly. Now, when we talk about health, what do you think is the main barrier uh, for health uh, for people with intellectual disabilities today? Um, I think we still have some leftovers from the past. We've got about uh, capabilities. You know, when we first started, uh, when you talked about putting uh, people with intellectual disabilities in or even in a race, run down the track, a lot of people look and it, it was a contradiction between the two things, you know. That's not what they would do. Now, a big part of what we had to do was overcome that and uh, uh, and show that the capabilities were indeed there and to show that the motivation and the interest and the, the uh, goal setting and everything would work with them too. So. Uh, We've overcome a lot of that, um, but not all of it. You know, there's still, if you talk about people with disabilities and they, uh, people don't think about that in sport in the same breath, my, uh, my viewpoint from the beginning was that what I really had to do was present this as sport to get all the benefits that we're talking about. I mean, everybody should have some recreation in their life and play and whatnot at certain times. And that's good. But what we're talking about is like the fourth dimension of activity. It's, it's a sport and people might look at kids playing on a playground, but they wouldn't think of that as sport. And, uh, and little by little, we did get that kind of recognition and, and uh, they established their relationships with sporting organizations in the countries, as we have here. Uh, I'll say that, the, you know, we only are able to use the word Olympics with the agreement from the Canadian Olympic Committee. And that's the same in all the countries of the world that are required to get agreement uh, uh, that they own that word and Olympiad, uh, Sidious, uh, Aldius, Fortius, all those things. And uh, it, were, it got sticky in some countries where they're very traditional with the Olympics, but uh, I'll tell you in Canada, not at all. <laughs> Here. Immediately they said, sure, you know, and what can we help you? And uh, the Canadian Olympic Committee was a big part of our, of our success. But as I say, it, it uh, would really help if people saw us as sport, not as just play or something casual to do it seriously. So I it was important to you that for the athletes to get everything out of it, they should get out of it, but also for us to get accepted as well. So from the beginning, I was thinking that that way. You know, um, 
the, uh, I've forgotten when it was, can't tell you the truth, but about three or four years ago, I think, I, uh, the uh, Canadian Sport Hall of Fame decided to put me in it. And my first thought was, like, I mean, obviously that's good for me and whatnot, but my first thought was, we've made it. You know, if they think that I, I can go in there for what I did in Special Olympics, that shows they accept us as sport in the Canadian Sport Hall of Fame. And uh, then, of course, uh, later on, uh, well, just last year, we had a wonderful uh, power lifter from out Newfoundland. And I had said when that happened, everybody said, geez, that's not great. And I said, well, you know, when we really made it will be when they appoint an athlete in there. I'm in as a builder. But if they look at the performances and the careers and do that and recognize that by our athletes, that means that, that's, that we really have acceptance. And that happened just last year with a wonderful uh, power lifter from uh, yeah, Jackie, there. <laughs> Jackie and Jackie um, you know he's won gold medals at world games and holds all the records for power lifting and special olympics but he also was conquering non-handicapped people in uh, generic power lifting as well and uh, it's unfortunate that uh, the COVID virus happened to come along and follow this up like everything else. And so he didn't get inducted this, this year, but he will next year. And uh, we'll all have a big celebration in Toronto because they always do the, the inductions there. And then uh, we have a big dinner and a party. And uh, um, he's... Uh, he has really made history that way, and uh, and I know I know enough of you guys and seen what you do that he's only the first. <laughs> there will be others in there for sure. For sure. And talking about meeting other athletes, you touched on meeting parents and other volunteers and watching games. Um, this is going to be probably your most difficult question I'm going to throw at you, but what has been your favorite memory throughout Special Olympics uh, in, for the entirety of the program? Oh, gee, there's so many great memories. I have trouble picking out one. Um, I think uh, of things I think about <clears throat> at the very first games in Chicago, 1968 um we we stayed at the lasalle hotel and we had at the kennedy foundation we had used that hotel for another event that we had in chicago so i went back there and then uh, about uh, a week before the games when people were right the folks at the park district in chicago called me and said uh, well, we thought we should let you know, but we're having a little trouble with the fundraising. Uh, we don't know we'll be able to cover it all. 
And I said, well, that's great. You wait till a week before and you tell me you've got trouble covering the hotel bill. And I said, uh, what would help? And they said, well, if we could get one of the meals at the hotel covered, that would be, be helpful. Uh, I mean, that's a, that year, that would have been a dinner for almost 2,000 people <laughs> between the athletes and the coaches and the celebrities and whatnot. And uh, I said, well, leave it with me. And then I found out that the, that hotel, the LaSalle, was owned by the president of the um, International Olympic Organization, the IOC, Avery Brundage. He was also known as a very, very tough guy and had his way and he was into all kinds of stuff with the, on an international scene. I thought, well, it's worth a try anyway. So I wrote him a letter and said, uh, well, I thought he'd be interested because of his concern with youth and sport, et cetera, to hear about what we were doing in Chicago. And, uh, and I said, and incidentally, we're staying at your hotel. So uh, we want, I want to invite you to the games and you could speak at the opening ceremonies and Alpha Zone. We'd be honored if you would come. And then I said, oh, and by the way, they're having a little trouble handling the fundraising. If you could, uh, if the hotel could cover one of the dinners, it would really help. But if you can't, I understand. <laughs> sort of threw that in at the end. When I came to Chicago to settle in early in the week, on the Monday, I guess, and the manager of the hotel, who uh, I had a good relationship with at that point, he came steaming across the lobby and he had my letter in his hand. He says, you wrote this letter to the old man? And I said, well, yeah, I just thought he'd like to know. And he says, you're asking for dinner. He says, he can't give you a dinner. I said, well, if he can't, he can't, you know, but I thought it was okay to ask. He said, if he thinks I put you up to this, he says, I'll lose my job. I said, no, no, it's just between me and him. And uh, so when I, uh, when I, uh, uh, oh, I got to the hotel and they told me he was away, he would be back the next day. Next day I got a call to go up to uh, his office and uh, they kept me sitting there waiting in the corner for about half an hour and eventually let me in. And, uh, he didn't even look up at me, and he said, uh, says, uh, you want a dinner? And I said, well, yes, Mr. Brundage, if you could. And he said, the hotel can't give you a dinner. I said, well, I understand, but I just thought I'd just, but the Brundage Foundation can. <laughs> so I didn't know he had his own private foundation as well, and he was prepared to cover that with funds from his foundation. And uh, so I, I'm thinking, I thought, well, Frank, you got your dinner. Get out of here now. And uh, as I'm backing up, he says, by the way, he says, who the hell told you you could use the name Olympic? <laughs> and I said, well, I did write to the U.S. Olympic Committee. He said, what'd they say? 
And I sort of grinned and I said, never answered. <laughs> and he said, typical and so on. No, he didn't even come to the games, but before I got down to my suite and office, uh, there was a call from a gal on the phone for me. She's waiting. And I said, yeah, she, I'm so and so. And she says, I'm the public relations director for the hotel. I just had a call from Mr. Brundage. He's talking about a dinner and he wants balloons and he wants music and he wants flags and everything. And she says, I'm just one person. So even Avery Brundage, the toughest guy in the Olympic movement, you know, bought it and uh, uh, covered us there. And I, um, that, you know, in answer to the question of memories I have of things happening, that was a big one. And, and also it meant in some ways that we were, again, accepted as sport. Definitely. And that's also a huge stepping stone for sure. And, uh, and that's one heck of a memory because, uh, again, it's, it's very important about who you talk to and who you meet. And the way that I approach things, even when I do fundraisers at a local level, what the worst case is they're going to say, no, you just got to put the ask out and you never know what you're going to come back with. Right. Yeah, that's right. You know, one other thing I'll tell you is that, um, big memories and wonderful ones that I have internationally are from Hong Kong. And I really think of those a lot when I hear about the problems in Hong Kong these days and the troubles they're having and demonstrations and whatnot. Uh, Hong Kong had some things going in sport there um, before I came along, but then I visited them four or five times and we did uh, demonstrations with athletes and so on. And there was a wonderful man there uh, heading that up and uh, Dick and Young. And uh, he stayed with the movement. He was involved in a lot of things in Hong Kong, eventually moved over to the States, but he was a terrific guy and, and it was really, he played a major role too in developing the Asia Pacific area because we hosted regional conferences and demonstrations in, in Hong Kong and, and he had wonderful people there. And then uh, I said to him, eventually I said, uh, Dick, and when are we gonna get into mainland China? the republic and he says well uh, it will happen frank i know he i knew he had contacts over there and he knew how to talk to him over there and i said dick and they have over a billion people in that country what a market you know we've got to get in there and he says just be patient be patient but i knew he was he went in there uh, frequently and he was working at it and then finally he called me I was back at my office in uh, at Mac, I guess then, and he said, uh, "Frank, they're ready." I said, "Really?" He says, "What are they going to do?" And he says, "They want uh, to have a training conference. They want to take two people from each of twelve regions that covers all of China, and two translators, and." Uh, they want you to come over and train them for a week or 10 days. Are you willing to do it? I said, I'll get on the plane tomorrow. I said, where are we gonna do it? 
And he said, uh, well, they asked the people in China, do they want to do it? Do you want Hayden to come into China? Or would you like to go to Hong Kong? And we have it there. Well, of course, that wasn't a choice. <laughs> For, in those days, you needed a special permit and an application, everything, just to get out of town. And to go to a place like Hong Kong for them would be wonderful. So uh, they came. We had a wonderful week, 10 days. They're all terrific people, great variety, men and women, different kinds of jobs. And the first day I saw them one evening, we had a reception in the sports center. And one of the translators come up to me and said, uh, excuse me, sir, but uh, the delegates say they want to know if you have any questions to ask them. And I said, well, I just have one. And, uh, and she said, well, what's that? And I said, I'd like them to tell me why they think they're here. You know, you don't know what you're getting and how much influence the government had on who got sent there and uh, what their attitudes and backgrounds were or how much they were told about Special Olympics. So she translated for the uh, one of the leaders and he looked really puzzled and he talked to a couple of other guys and they looked puzzled and they buzzed among themselves and eventually the guy turned and he said to her in Chinese, he says, uh, well, he says, that question is very easy to answer. I said, yeah, what's the answer? He says, you're going to tell us what to do and we're going to go back and do it. <laughs> and I couldn't get a better answer than that. If I went to Europe, I'd tell them what to do and they'd give me five ways that are better, you know, but I said, terrific. And we did have that terrific meet when i and i came back dickon called me um to let me know that they went back to their regions which covered all of china and within a year they had had large-scale games at uh, all 12 regions and then he called me again he says frank he says i've had a call again from the folks in china he says they're going to run national games now and that only took them just over a year to get that far and i said oh that's terrific he says but they called me and they wondered if you'd come over for their games and i said nothing would make me happier and i went over and uh, the games were very well done and it uh, um and it's nice to see my old friends to reunite with them it's so different from what you know the hong kong situation right now for example or the the image that some people have of china and chinese and uh, they're wonderful i went over and had tea with them in the dormitories in the evening and uh and one thing you'll appreciate this one i was talking uh, to somebody out on the field the translator came up and said, sir, one of the coaches would like to talk to you. I said, fine. He came and she translated. He wanted to know if I'd go over and watch his athlete. I said, sure, where is it? So we go over and he's a long jumper. Uh, young man, 18 years, maybe 19. And uh, the coach signals him. 
he runs down the runway for the long jump, the running long jump, and going like crazy. He hits a takeoff board and he sails through the air and with a fantastic jump. And I would just, I said, God, that's fantastic. I congratulated the coach. I said, you've done a fantastic job with him. And uh, he's a wonderful jumper. And he grinned and he looked at me and he said, remember you told us first stage, second stage, third stage training? And I says, oh yeah. He says, it works. That's fantastic. <laughs> I, I, I know it works. That's why I told you. <laughs> well, hey, next time I need some more training, maybe I'll, I'll give you a ring up and get you to come out and show me some moves as well. Um, <laughs> Really, yeah, quickly, I don't know how physically active I'll be, but I'll be there. <laughs> now, really quickly before we wrap up, my last question for you is: for those that are watching that are Special Olympic athletes, do you have any words or uh, any kind of words of wisdom you would like to share with those athletes that are watching? Really quick. Well, I want you to know how much—not just me, but. So many people, when they see you compete and see what you do, they have great admiration for you. It's not what they thought they were going to see. And uh, many people, when they see that, they become involved. When we first started Special Olympics, it was pretty well all volunteer. It isn't now, as you know, because there's a... Uh, uh, sorry. Hello? Yeah, we'll be down about five minutes. Okay. Sorry about that. That's a lunch call. <laughs> but uh, the uh, and but get everything out of it. Uh, when you compete, compete for yourself and and to perform the very best you can. And. Uh, Get to see the whole sport picture, what's in there for you, not just the run the race and take two seconds off your time, but the relationship with your athletes, the friends you make. One thing I really regret is that uh, it hasn't been possible for me to keep contact with all the wonderful people and friendships I made even around the world. And I think wouldn't it be nice to see them all in one place though, but it's not possible, but do what you can because those good teammates that you have can be friends for life. And that's something Special Olympics can do for you as well. Definitely. And you know what, we have, we know you have so many more stories that we want to have you share. And we had some questions um, coming in as well that we weren't able to get to, but we will make sure um, that we will feature them next time or, or do something like this again soon. Uh, so Dr. Frank, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to chat with me today, to share your stories, your memories, uh, and be part of the show today. We really appreciate it. And again, on behalf of myself, all my fellow athletes, coaches, volunteers, and everyone within the Special Olympics movement, thank you so much again for everything that you've done for us um, to make Special Olympics what it is today. And um, yeah, just thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you at the games. Yes, for sure. Wherever it is. <laughs> <laughs>
Thanks again. Okay, so much. thank you for Thanks including me. Really enjoyed it. No problem. We'll talk again. Right. Take care. And all right, perfect. We are done being live. Thank you again, uh, for Dr. Frank. Uh, Chris and James, I think, are going to hop on real quick. Well, Great uh, job, Dr. Frank. Thank you so much. I, I think I better go or they won't feed me. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy your lunch. Okay. Sorry to have kept you. Take care. <laughs> Bye. All right, thanks. Bye -bye. So Bye. Bye. Say hi to Mary. Take care, Dr. Frank. James, do you shut down his camera?